0: never forget this little girl she might have been six or seven and I looked down and she said um, we get to have these supplies too and I said yeah this is for you and she said oh I feel like it's Christmas and she was so excited about school supplies you don't know what it's like to not have that you, you have no idea what that feels like Christmas for her is school supplies and food
1: from the times of Northwest Indiana This is Byline, a show about one newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Andrew Jones.
2: I'm Cale Wilk.
1: And this week we're going to look at one reporter's perspective on just what newspapers are.
2: Being a reporter, you know, a lot of people are skeptical of the media, uh, especially nowadays.
1: And a community leaders look back on what made her what she is today.
0: Make sure that you take your sisters and your brother there and you eat breakfast and you eat lunch there. Don't eat the food that's in the refrigerator here because we need that for dinner.
1: So, here's a question for you. When you think of newspapers, what do you think they really do for their community? That's the question we had this week. And we got answers too. Not only that, but we heard some pretty amazing stories about endurance, family, love, hope, need, and a bunch of other things. This week, we're going to try to tell the story of poverty in Northwest Indiana and of the people fighting it. We'll talk about the role that the newspaper plays in that fight, and we'll speak to somebody who's dealing with that fight right now. But let's start with our reporter. Damien Rico, who has a story of his own.
2: And I'm a writer, um, I'm a photographer, and I do some video as well. Okay, sweet.
1: This week, Uh, Damien reported on the uh, Checkout checkout Challenge, which is...
2: Uh, Checkout Challenge basically enables uh, shoppers at uh, Ultra Foods, Town & Country, and all this check in At when you check out, they'll ask you, you know, would you like to, say your bill is $12.02, would you like to... Round up to thirteen dollars for uh, the local not-for-profit that month. Uh,
1: you can always give more than that, but uh, they, they Damian runs a story about the checkout challenge and, every uh, month. Some, some His is a community beat. He writes what we would call soft news—news news about the pulse of the community, the good that people are doing, the concerts that they're going to, the value that they're adding to their neighborhoods.
2: Uh, yeah, I think this community is fantastic. Um, you know, the region as people call it. Um, I'm not a big fan of the region rat kind of thing that they, they say. Uh, is, you know, it's, it's cute, it's fun, but uh, when you look at it, you know there's, there's no rats here. These people are fantastic people and I, I just think that uh, we're very lucky because it's so diverse.
1: One thing about Damien is that he takes his work seriously, even personally. His experience and his worldview go hand in hand with his reporting. For instance, I asked him about growing up in this region and how he came to work here at the Times. Um,
2: I wanted to be an attorney initially, and, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you think the money and the uh, finances and the toys and, you know, the suits. You watch Al Pacino and Dog Day afternoon, you think you can get up there and that's what you want to do. But uh, when you get to the real world and you start meeting individuals and you see how, um, you see your strengths and you start understanding what your gifts are, you, you think a lot differently, and uh, I, I believe it was a not-for-profit um, organization that kind of helped me to be a lot, a lot more compassionate for people and to strive to do uh, some better impact in, in the community.
1: So Damien's story is one of a steady realization of a couple of things. One, service is important, and two, what you say can make all the difference.
2: And uh, I have had a lot of people open up to me, and you know, I've given people my word that I won't you know, this is off the record and you know and they can tell me things and, and it's been fantastic and you can't you can't uh, practice that you, it's something you either have or you don't and you have to have trust people um, you know once you lose their trust whether it's children or whether it's adults once you lose that trust uh, it's gonna to be hard for you to, be successful
1: in this business as we spoke to damien um, i think we began to realize something about the way that he works for me this hit me when he told the story to about. about something that he saw on a recent vacation you
2: know, every time we go back to mexico and we vacation uh, it's a culture shock so my my wife and i we went there a couple of years ago and there were some kids about three o'clock in the morning we were going to a, a nightclub they were they were picking out cans out in, in the garbage can and uh My wife says, don't these kids have school mom? I said, they probably do, but they're doing what they need to do to help support the family. And they must be six or seven years old, you know, and they weren't complaining. They weren't begging for money. They were just doing what they needed to do um, to collect these cans, probably to eat the next day. And, uh, you know, that's a perfect mindset. I mean, they, they weren't filthy dirty. They didn't look like they were, you know, they were just kids in the street doing what they had to do. And I think in our country, um, you know, our poor is very different from other country poor. And uh, we're very fortunate here. There's a lot of opportunities here. There's a lot of resources here to
1: help folks that maybe some other third world countries don't have. Opportunity is probably the most important word in this episode. Talking to Damien helped us think about poverty in terms of what opportunities people have and don't have, and sometimes how that means a world of difference for them. Damien had values about opportunities passed down to him from his parents and grandparents. Now, he's passing those values on to the readers of the Times. Because of what Damien writes, because the newspaper has a sort of value-based relationship with its community, people are getting and giving opportunities all the time this might not be something you think of often. The question I asked at the beginning is key here. What do you think newspapers really do for their community? And I wasn't really sure when we started to put this story together, what the answer to that question was. But after we talked to Damien and Angie, it began to make a little bit more sense.
0: (laughs) You're looking at it right here. My chai tea latte from Starbucks, Breakfast of Champions.
1: This is Angie. (laughs) <laughs> I think adulting is when you like just drink coffee for breakfast. You know, right? Breakfast yeah, that's no, right. Just, and what I want you to do for me is just to go ahead and, well, and we'll listen to her time story, time. which I'm going to let her tell by oh, herself, okay. no, and then I'll be back you. in a couple minutes and we'll talk through it.
0: So, about a month ago, I had this really amazing opportunity to attend a conference in Seattle with about 300 plus grant makers from across the country. And I got emotional because I started thinking about me and my life and where I came from. And I thought about me as a little girl. I grew up in East Chicago in the harbor. And if you know anything about East Chicago, there's a lot of challenges there. There's a lot of revitalization happening, which is great for me to see because I'm in the community. I don't live there anymore, but I'm in the community quite a bit. Um, But at that time where I grew up, there was a lot of poverty and violence and violence. and and crime. It was just a really depressed um, community. And so I thought about me and um, I, gosh, I was my, me have been 10 or 11 and um, I'm the oldest of five. So uh, my parents were both working very hard, sometimes more than one job. Um, But there just was never enough um, money, I think, to just kind of cover all the expenses that we had as a family. And so um, I remember times that we didn't have enough to eat um, there was a, a small point in time where uh, we didn't we lost our apartment for a small period of time and I might have been almost 12 at that time and I would distinctly remember that experience um, I remember like when it would be time to go back to school I um, I would always dread it because like my mom and dad just, they never really had enough money to help pay for school supplies and things like that. We were always that those kids in the classroom where sometimes you didn't have all your supplies and the teacher would get frustrated because you didn't have the right crayons or you didn't have all your folders or whatever. And you couldn't say, well, it's because my mom and dad, they just didn't have enough money to, to purchase our supplies. And so, so all of, I remember all of that. And, um, the difference, though, I think for me compared to my peers at that time is that I had two amazing parents that loved us and were trying. And at least we had a strong family structure at home. So even though we might not have had food to eat all the time, my parents, they tried, you know, they, they, they did as much as they could to, to try to bridge that gap for our family. I had friends that I went to school with that didn't have that. I had friends that went home and there was no mom or dad there. Or their mom might have had, you know, a drug addiction. Or they just had a lot more challenges than I had. So I feel at least I had a fighting chance because we had my parents. But there are a lot of kids that I grew up with that didn't have didn't have that at all. Um, so at that time, it, there was this little community center that was right across the street from this apartment building that we lived in. And we started going there because my parents didn't have anywhere for us to be after school. They couldn't afford childcare. That with five kids and the income that they were making, that was just not uh, a possibility. And so I was the oldest, so I was responsible for caring for my brothers and sisters um, after school. And they found out that that center had uh, a child care, like a, an after-school program that was free for families. And so that's what started. And so I would, every day after school, I would walk to that center with my sisters and my brother, and we would stay there until my parents got out of work. Um, that center became a source of hope for my family and represented a lot of resources so we were going there after school my parents knew that we were somewhere safe um, they didn't have to worry about the burden of trying to pay financially pay for that kind of child care for five kids and then in the summertime that center was open all day long in the summer for kids just like me and they had a free breakfast and lunch program there and I remember my dad always telling me in the mornings like don't Make sure that you take your sisters and your brother there and you eat breakfast and you eat lunch there. Don't eat the food that's in the refrigerator here because we need that for dinner. And and when you're growing up, you don't really think about it. You think that that's how everybody's family is. But now that I'm an adult and I'm a parent, it really hits home for me just how intense that financial struggle was for my family that my dad had to emphasize to me at 11 years old, make sure you eat at that center. You know, Don't eat the food that's here because they were trying to stretch everything out. Um, and I, ironically, when I became the director of the food bank, we were actually operating that summer food service program, which was just kind of amazing to me. So the same program that fed me and my siblings growing up later as I become an adult, I'm directing that program for other kids. So um, so we, we kind of grew up in that center, for lack of a better term. We really did. We knew all the staff. We had friends there. Um, it was a safe place to be. We were fed there, um, and then for me, on a personal note, I got my first job in that program at 16, and the first paycheck I had, I'll never forget, I was so excited. I bought groceries for our family. Like, that's what I did with my check. Like, I didn't go buy clothes. I didn't go buy shoes. You know, it, it was that. Like, that was, um, That's. that's what I did with that first paycheck.
1: So there are a couple of things that Angie left with us. First, the strength of family. So many people assume that growing up in poverty means that a family must have fallen apart for some reason. But that's just not the case here. Between the love and service that her parents modeled to their kids, Angie reiterated that being poor didn't get in the way of living. Second, Angie herself admits that she doesn't know where she'd be without opportunity. Whether that opportunity came in the form of someone who believed in her, like Gloria, or just a place to get a good meal from, like the Clemente Center, a small opportunity can change someone's life forever. But that's not the most amazing thing about Angie. The most amazing thing is that when given love, strength, and opportunity, she turns right back around and gives it back. Zoom ahead to 2016, and we find Angie as the Director for
3: Community Impact at the Lake Area Chapter of United Way. Since 1998, she's been involved in advocacy work and the nonprofit sector. And it all started...
0: At a little community center in East Chicago called the Say Clemente Center.
3: Being the beneficiary of services at the center while she was a kid, she became a tutor at age 16. But there was one woman helped open her up to the possibilities of nonprofit management and that was Gloria Ballerini who was a director at the center.
0: Gloria really opened my eyes to this whole idea of, of working in nonprofits she said later you know she just saw something in me and so she took the time as an adult to expose me to things that I normally would not have been exposed to and she just started um I don't just providing all these experiences to me. And so I started tutoring in that program, and then Gloria started teaching me how to write grants and um, had me sit in meetings. And my first meeting I sat in, which is so crazy how life comes full circle, it was a United Way meeting.
3: United Way was deciding on funding for the Clemente Center. And it was at this meeting that Angie had a moment where she realized something.
0: And it's also the first time that I ever realized that we were poor because they were talking about poverty in that meeting and they were talking about um, income levels of those in poverty and they were just describing the characteristics of poverty and as I sat there I thought oh they're talking about like my family it's so weird it was like the first time that um, I ever made the connection that, that that was us that kind of was a catapult for me that my whole framework changed and I was no longer thinking about becoming an attorney or any of that. I was just so I just fell in love with the work that that center did and then I, I quickly started accelerating. So
3: From there, Angie kept building her skills. She eventually left the Clemente Center to become a worker and the executive director at the Food Bank of North Indiana in 2006. And then in 2013, she joined United Way and has been there ever since.
0: Sometimes having an adult outside of your parents look at you and say you're special, you're going to be something amazing, and I want to help you when you don't see that in yourself it is just phenomenal, it's life-changing, and Gloria did that for me. The, the mentorship piece that she provided that United Way champions did that for me.
3: Angie's work with United Way looks to solve all aspects of poverty because it can't be boiled down to a single factor. There's a big focus on children, too.
0: I mean, right here in Lake County, one in four children are living in poverty. One in four. Uh, That was me. I mean, there are United Way's hard at work to create a safety net for children just like me.
3: Since poverty has many aspects, let's take hunger, for example. There are multiple families that will use food pantries. A third of them use it for more than 28 consecutive months. In Lake County, there is a 16.5% food insecurity rate, which means an inability to afford food. To meet the basic food needs, it would take a whopping $37 million to be able to make sure almost 82,000 people were properly fed. The 2016 poverty line for a family of four is about $24,000. The United Way Alice Project researched poverty in 2014 in Indiana, and found that it took at least $55,000 for a family of four to afford the basics of food, shelter, and transportation. So if you do the math, those at the federal poverty line would only be making half to be able to afford the basics. But there was one statistic that Angie noted about poverty-stricken households.
0: Through the data in Lake County, we realized that 65% of all poverty-stricken households in this county are being headed by single females, no husband present. So single moms, which we just thought that that was alarming.
3: So I talked to one, or one who had been. This is Carissa.
4: Well, um, my name is Carissa Childers. I am 34 years old. I live in Valparaiso, Indiana, and I am a steelworker. I found out I was pregnant um, right after I turned 18. I was a single mom for two years.
3: She worked two part-time jobs and went to school full-time. Because she was in a low-income setting, She utilized local food banks.
4: I had to utilize local food pantries to get me through the rest of the month. There were days that I went hungry, but I always made sure that my son was fed, which, you know, a lot of the support came from Lake Erie United Way.
3: She recalls one of those instances.
4: I was very ashamed of myself when I first had to, you know, go to the food pantry because I was embarrassed like I was a failure. But then I realized that there were so many other people out there who were just like me, just trying to get by to take care of their family. They didn't want nothing extra, just enough to get by. So at that point, that's when I realized, you know what, I'm not by myself. There's agencies out there to help me. And then I knew, like, okay, I shouldn't be ashamed because there's other people like me.
3: Now, Carissa is a steelworker. She had three more kids and lives a more stable life in Valparaiso. She even volunteers with United Way.
4: Actually, I would not change a thing. Um, Everything that I went through did help me become the person I am today. It made me a stronger person, and it taught me how to survive. It really did, um, but it basically gave me the drive to say, you know what, I'm not gonna just sit here and feel sorry for myself. You know, I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna make changes, and every little bit helps. And if it's one mouth that's gonna be able to be fed because of something that I did for the people that I work with, if it's something that we can do to help the community
3: in it's many more personal accounts just like that that Angie wants to help and the collective amounts of the checkout challenge can rise to nearly
0: $50,000. So every dollar, quarter, penny, any contribution that a customer makes at the stores will be donated to uh, four United Ways. And all of the United Ways are going to use the dollars raised to help support programming that helps children living in poverty across the region. There's just not enough resources today to ensure that every child, every one in four, has access to those opportunities because the resources don't exist, which is why the Checkout Challenge campaign is so important.
3: And for Angie, getting to help kids sounds a bit like how Gloria treated her.
0: Um, I have a sensitivity to people and I have a big heart for people and um, someone has to look at those children and say you are special you have the potential to be something amazing and we're gonna help you get there I work at United Way because we do that through our partners we do that every single day but we also know the dark side of it without those supports without those interventions yes research shows they are more likely to drop out of school. They are more likely to become a poverty-stricken adult, you know, less likely to to achieve anything. The odds are stacked so high against you. Those interventions are so critical. Those supports are so critical.
1: Recently, Angie was at a local food bank. While she was there, she met a little in girl. Gary, Here's at, what happened.
0: community center in Gary. And um, to, to kick off the program, we did backpacks full of school supplies that was because I remembered how that was. And the first dinner we had was almost like a Thanksgiving dinner. Like we had turkey and mashed potatoes. We had everything. And um, we had about 100 kids in that room. And I'll never forget. So we're serving the kids. We're playing games. And and then we, we bring out the school supplies. And this little girl, she might have been six or seven. She's pulling on my skirt. And I looked down and she said, um... We get to have these supplies too? And I said, yeah, this is for you. And she said, oh, I feel like it's Christmas. And she was so excited about school supplies. And um, somebody that was working with me was like, oh, it's school supplies. Like, my kids wouldn't be excited about that. It's like paper and folders. And I was like, because you don't know what it's like to not have that. You, You have no idea what that feels like. And so for this little girl, this is like Christmas. Christmas for her is not... An expensive toy or, you know, a a Wii or an Xbox. Christmas for her is school supplies and food.
1: Moments like this are when Angie sees herself reflected in the faces of those she serves. She tears up telling this story, not only because it's a little sad, but because it's so close to home. Angie has two daughters of her own now. She's glad they don't have to go through what she did, but she hopes that they can learn from her story.
0: The challenge I have with my daughters is because they've never lived that experience, which is awesome for them. Um, Now, as a mom, I didn't realize how much it shaped my way of thinking, the way I I feel about people, the way I care about people. I didn't attribute that to growing up in poverty. Now I get it. So I have to work, I think, super hard as a parent. Um, to help instill that compassion and sensitivity in my daughters because they're not going to have that shared experience. They've never lived it. And that's that's the challenge I have as a mom. So we're, we're now having that dialogue as a family that they're getting a little bit older and, and I'm looking for um, some volunteer experiences. We Like next year we might do a mission trip instead of like a family vacation because I just think it's important for them to see the world in a different lens and. Uh, and be humbled by
1: that. Humility is something that's not too far from Damien's mind as well. He sees Angie as an inspiration, the kind of person that our community needs more than anything else. And that's why it's important to tell her story, which is Damien's job. Sure,
2: um, you definitely you, every piece of news that is published in our paper is is important to somebody, or else the editors won't put it in there. So. You know, you just never know what you're going to do and and how you're going to impact people.
1: And if every piece is important, doesn't that make the newspaper more than just a media outlet? More than an archive of things that happen on a daily basis? Talking to Angie this week, thinking about the Times' partnership with local businesses and charities, thinking about the checkout challenge, thinking about the stories that are told through this medium, we realize that a newspaper is more than just news. It's part of the glue that holds communities together. To answer the question at the beginning of the story, what do newspapers do for their community? Well, I think the answer is something like this. They show how, even though we can feel so different, we are more alike than we might question, know. Yes,
2: but I think the most successful people are the ones that not necessarily look at the differences, but look at the similarities that we all have. Because it's easy to connect with somebody when you look at the similarities and I had the opportunity, to, in honor of doing uh, an interview with Felix Cavallari. He's um, the original founder of the Rascals. They sang "Ruben" and uh, uh, It's a Beautiful Morning, um, fantastic group. And I had talked to him about, you know, why he started the music. And he says, you know, Damien, to be honest with you, it was a time when Kennedy was shot, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, And we were so sick of all this hatred. He goes, I know it sounds cliche, but the song we wrote, Everybody Got to Be Free, is because we wanted everybody to be free. And he goes, you know, here we are 40 years from now, and I'm still playing these songs, and people are dancing and listening. And he goes, and we're still having civil unrest in our communities. So although we've come so far, there's still so far to go.
1: If newspapers can show us that there are commonalities in a community, if it can prove through storytelling that we can only call ourselves a community because of our similarities, then they're not just important, they're vital. They give us stories of shared experiences, of real human voices like Angie's and Carissa's. They give us the power to look, as Damien says, beyond money and class.
2: My kid all the time about music and music. Uh, He's only five years old, but he knows about Alice Cooper, and about Billy Joel, and, you know, about Smokey Robinson, who his grandma loved. If you listen to those lyrics of those songs, we're all the same, you know, we all want to be loved, we all want to be appreciated, we all want to love somebody, find somebody, and have that person in our lives. And, you know, things don't change, and it's the same thing with whether you and I are talking, you know. You can't look at people and say, oh, this guy, he's, he's got a lot of money, or these people had cars, we didn't have cars. You know, if you look at the, the commonalities and the and the similarities, we've got we all have a lot more in common than what we think we do, mm-hmm. and I think that's what it that's what it takes. Whether you're a journalist, whether you're a pipe fitter, or whether you're the CEO of a company, if you take that time to understand people and to see um, and meet them where they're at, you're a better person because that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be every job is service oriented if you think about it. So serving others is, is probably the most fulfillment. And Mark Twain said it best. The best way to make somebody else, ha- uh, make yourself happy is make somebody else happy. And that's the most gratifying, is when people can comment you and come to you. Hmm.
1: These things are a huge part of what stories and the people who tell them and publish them are about. Service, humility, even happiness. And maybe it's not too much of a stretch to say that those are the things that bring us together. Those are the things that make us free. All the world
4: over, so easy to see. People everywhere just want to be free. I can understand. It's so simple to me. It is. People everywhere just get to be free.
3: Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. New episodes come out each Monday and can be found at nwitimes.com slash podcasts. Are you on social media? You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search NWI Byline and we'll appear. And if you love podcasts and want each of our episodes to show up on your media player, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Just be sure to leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out to us, just drop us an email at nwibyline at gmail.com. We appreciate constructive comments and feedback, as well as suggestions for topics you
1: want to hear about. Reporting for this episode came from reporter Damian Rico, Kale Wilk, and myself, Andrew Jones. The show is edited and produced by Kale Wilk and myself. Statistics and data for this episode came from Feeding America, the Kids Count Data Center, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Thanks to the show's creator, as always, Summer Moore, digital and audience engagement editor at The Times, a.k.a. our head honcho for all things that go into the production of the show. And a very special thanks this week goes out to Felix Cavallari, founding member of the band The Rascals, whose song you're hearing right now. That's The People Gotta Be Free. Thanks to Felix because he gave us personal permission through Damien Rico, who knows him, to use that song. Thank you so much, Felix. We hope you listen to this episode and we really appreciate you letting us use your band's song. It's
3: about the rhymes in a minute. I'm Cale Wilk.
1: I'm Andrew Jones. And from both of us here in Northwest Indiana, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your week.